What is going on, everybody? We are back with another Hidden Falls Media Experience episode. I have an incredible guest today. For those of you that ever need any type of insight around word of mouth, marketing, and how word of mouth affects us outside of business and in our day-to-day lives, this episode is for you. But before we get into the episode, I want to remind you of the fee. We don't run ads. We don't sell you any type of weird course that's going to turn you into a guru or anything like that. We just bring on the top guests in their industry and field to help provide you value, get you better training, access to better resources, so you can go out there and make the most of your life. And hopefully, if you found a nugget inside this podcast, you'll give it a share, you'll give us a review, and that's how we grow, not just for us, but it also helps our guests grow too, help you know pay back for their time. They provide their time so graciously for free. The best we can do is help kind of give them a platform as well. So... Today's guest is Jake Teeny. He is an incredible researcher, an incredible academic, but his field of research is in word of mouth marketing. So please welcome Jake to the show. Jake, thanks for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited. So I found out about you about a year ago when I was listening to Andy Luttrell's podcast, who we just had on last week. Um, And I really, really was captivated by the conversation that you have around word of mouth. And I want to kind of steer it away from where you and Andy went because there was there's so much gold there. I want them to go watch that <laughs> one specifically. But real fast, we hear word of mouth marketing all over the place. It's almost become an insatiable buzzword, especially for marketers and for business owners. What in the world is word of mouth marketing beyond the obvious of somebody's just talking with their mouth? Yeah, well, word of mouth has a pretty broad definition in both the academic and kind of lay world. It can encompass anything from in-person conversations between one or multiple people to online reviews left anonymously to comments in social media networks. Its broad definition is just kind of any discussion about a broad or a brand, a product, an attitude object, whatever, between two people unaffiliated with the corporation or the maker or whatever the kind of like source of that object is. Interesting. So what is what does word of mouth research look like? Right. When I'm sure when you tell people I do word of mouth research, they're just like, so are you just listening to all my conversations all day? <laughs> no, that'd probably be pretty boring. Um, but, <laughs> you know, so it's interesting. So word of mouth research largely began looking at its impact. Is word of mouth effective? And overwhelmingly, yes. I mean, study after study reports that anywhere from 70 to 95 percent of our purchases are all informed by word of mouth. Um, so, you know, it has a big impact on what we buy, who we talk to, um, all these things, but what the shift in the literature these days has been, well, what makes people generate word of mouth in the first place? What are the antecedents to engaging people in these conversations? You know, in the marketing world, about 65% of marketing managers say it's the most important form of marketing out there yet they have really no great idea on how to actually utilize it. So a lot of the research and word of mouth these days is, well, what leads people to spread word of mouth and how can we utilize that information to get them to talk about our product, brand, service, et cetera? Sure. What are some of those methods that you've seen be super, I mean, before we even get into that, those numbers are astounding. Mm-hmm. It's that high up. I mean, we all, we all hear about how important it is, but like you said, 
there's very rarely ever a strategy or a structure in place to kind of push and guide word of mouth because people don't do things unless they're called to action to really do them, right? So what are some of those ways that you've seen word of mouth be effective? What are some of the ways that research are showing are the most prominent ways to use this? Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of different factors, both personal within, you know, the individual sharing the word of mouth to the context in which the word of mouth is taking place. Is it online? Is it in person? Even to the specificity of the channel, are you doing it on your phone versus are you doing it on your computer? Wow. So broadly, they kind of categorize the antecedents of word of mouth into three categories. One is this social bonding. So, you know, you're sharing word of mouth either to improve your, uh, you know, how you look to others, maybe to build closeness with others. Um, the other one is information acquisition. Maybe you're trying to talk to others to get more information about a product, um, you know, even sharing your experiences to hear what they think about them. And then the third one um, is emotion regulation. So we often share word of mouth to influence how we ourselves feel, either kind of elevate, uh, you know, our mood or, you know, try to get rid of some anxiety we're feeling. So those are kind of the three like psychological bases. And then within there, there's a, a lot of complexity that I'd be happy to get into. Sure. Um, yeah, I would imagine that that's kind of where you can get some of that buyer's remorse, right? Is that if you buy a product and you're looking for that social proof of like, hey, I actually made the right decision, and then somebody comes on like, oh, no, you shouldn't have bought that. It breaks down in like two weeks. Like you get that rush of like, ah, shit. Like now I got to go back and try to return this thing. I don't want to deal with it. Right. So yeah. it's interesting to see that really play out within those. Where do you see a lot of people making mistakes? How do like where are the big pitfalls that people make in each one of those categories that you see? And you're like, oh, like if they just made that small, like 5% tweak, it'd be 100% better. Yeah, yeah. Well, first, you know, you mentioned buyer's remorse. And I, I think that's really interesting, because there's a common perception that negative word of mouth is more common than positive word of mouth. So people are more likely to share things they dislike or things that, you know, went badly. But in fact, the opposite is true. People are more likely to engage in positive word of mouth um, because related to that motive I mentioned earlier, that social bonding, people want to look competent. They want to look smart. If I'm sharing word of mouth about how this product was purchased, you know, went, went bad, you know, well, I kind of look like a stupid consumer for buying a broken product. So again, kind of that buyer's remorse, they almost share the positive side just to make themselves feel better about it. Now, in regard to your question about how do things go wrong? Are you asking from like the marketer's perspective, like how, you know, they market a product in a poor way that leads to bad word of mouth or or what's the, the specific I, question? I was looking more like, so what do you, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see people make out there in the marketplace so they were trying to make the point to get good word of mouth and it just kind of falls flat on its face right okay yeah no i think i think that's um a really good question and definitely practical advice. So Jonah Berger has some research. He has a great book called Contagious. And in there, he kind of outlines these uh, five or so steps that you can try to utilize in promoting word of mouth. So, um, you know, one of those steps is uh, putting, you want to have some kind of trigger in the environment. People talk about things, even though they talk about interesting things, they're more likely to talk about things in their surrounding environment, things that they can actually see. You know, he has this quote, top of mind 
mind is tip of tongue. So things that are very aware and kind of prevalent to us increase our likelihood of spreading word of mouth about it. Um, but probably one of the, the more um, effective strategies in building word of mouth is to build some kind of social currency into it. So social currency is this idea that when you share information with someone, it conveys value. You look smart having known this information. You look like a savior because you've protected them from information. So being able to build some kind of social currency into the product um, can really increase people's likelihood of sharing it because, you know, they want to be perceived as smart and helpful and all these positive things. Very cool. I want to get into one of the fascinating areas that you've been super deep in, which is how word of mouth has affected the political atmosphere and what the research is coming out around some of this and how we see word of mouth affect just the United States with what's going on. Yeah, so political word of mouth is really interesting because there is shockingly very little research on it. So as impactful as it is, um, there's not a whole lot of academic work on why people engage in it. And it's even more surprising this is the case because when it comes to political marketing, this is often regarded as the least trusted form of marketing. So when you think of traditional print advertisements, TV advertisements, people tend to be the most skeptical, skeptical of this. So generally what happens is that marketing isn't what influences voters. It's when that marketing influences people to engage in word of mouth and that word of mouth is what then lead, leads on to uh, kind of the voter turnout. So in the political domain, again, th there hasn't been a lot of work on it, but what's kind of helpful or at least promising is that research suggests that essentially the way we look at political marketing is very similar to the way we look at um, like brand marketing. So when we think of a brand, we can actually, we tend to think of political parties in the same way. We tend to think of political parties as businesses and they're selling the product, which is their candidate. So for all the research we know about, you know, what motivates someone to talk about a product, it similarly uh, motivates people to talk about a candidate. Now, I'd say probably the one big difference in political marketing is where in the consumer domain, people are more likely to spread positive word of mouth. In the political domain, people are more likely to spread negative word of mouth. So, you know, and probably one of the, you know, the juiciest topics to discuss or spread uh, is corruption. So if there's any kind of corruption about a specific candidate, that gains a lot more traction when it comes to political word of mouth. And I think you, you saw that play out a lot in the 2016 election. You saw it come up again in this 2020 election. Um, and so, you know, hitting home on, unfortunately, the, the negative aspects, that negative word of mouth is really, you know, a strong driver of political word of mouth. Yeah, what's so strange to me about this is that when we look at the ways to influence people and start to change minds or to get them to come on your team versus somebody else or to get them to join your, as Andy would say, in group versus out group on that, it's very rare that arguing or arguing with them is the way to do that. It's very clearly usually, hey, we need to have a conversation where we've set, we've set some level of guidelines of, hey, I'm going to be respectful, you're going to be respectful, but we just need to hear each other's ideas. And that's typically how we see influence of side, not necessarily just based of, hey, like, I'm just going to start throwing the shit at you and expecting it to kind of work out that I'm going to win. 
Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. There's some really cool research coming out now looking at kind of promoting these bipartisan dialogues and what can be um, most successful and facilitating them. And one of the really key elements is signaling your open mindedness, signaling that you're going to genuinely listen to this other person. So, you know, inviting the other person to speak first and then presenting your opinion afterward. And in, you know, when presenting your opinion, acknowledge the merits of what they have to say is going to lead to a lot more fruitful discussion. When the other person believes, you know, you're just going to try to persuade them, you know, they're going to throw up their guards, they're going to not listen. And so it's about, you know, believing that there is going to be this give and take of ideas. Why do you think we don't have that already? Yeah, yeah, you know, I think there's a, a large number of factors here. I think, um, by and large, politics these days have become a lot more intertwined with our identities. And so when you threaten my politics, you threaten my identity. And we are very ego sensitive creatures. And so when my identity starts to get threatened, I start to kind of throw up my defensive reactions, and you start to actually reaffirm your already held identities, you would think maybe having your idea challenged would make you reconsider it and think about the merits of the other side. But in fact, we just kind of want to dig in our heels and say, No, 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 I've got the right stance, I've got the right attitude. And so you know that I think that's one big factor. Um, there's a lot of other factors. Nowadays, people draw greater inferences from a single attitude. So if someone says they support Trump, um, anti-Trumpers all of a sudden hit them with just a ton of different beliefs that they think this person holds, even though all they're saying is they support Trump. So, you know, we're inferring a greater deal, often negative qualities about this other person from a single opinion they express, which leads that other person to think, well, I'm not going to engage with them. Wow. That's really interesting. And not, mm -hmm. I've not heard that put in any way like that before, which I think is very interesting. It almost sounds like that they're using confirmation bias for a lot of this to kind of fuel that need over and over again for them of, hey, I saw that guy. I looked for the one quality or trait that I didn't like about him. And now I'm just reaffirming that belief over and over. All Everybody in that group now believes that and they're all like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, I'm not sure what all you talked about with in-group, out-group with Andy, but there's, you know, a lot of work on this out-group homogeneity effect where when you see, when you think about someone from the out-group, you think they're all the same. So when you think of one Trump supporter, you think they're all the same kind of Trump supporter. And we just know that's not the case. People are very diverse in their opinions and beliefs. Um, but when, again, they're in the out-group, we tend to kind of lump them all together. So what do we do to kind of fix that mindset in ourselves? How, how do we actually take action to make sure that we're coming at this in the most rational way or the most progressive way for us as not just individuals, but as our greater society? Yeah, you know, I think I think that is a great question and one that behavioral scientists are uniquely equipped to try and understand and, and definitely working toward understanding now. Um, I think a, a big part is kind of trying to take a step back, separate it from your identity and realize both groups here are really just trying to figure out what is going to be best for society and best for people. And when you recognize that people are, you know, coming at it with good intentions, you know, rather than these kind of, I'm trying to persuade you intentions, or, you know, I just care about myself, these selfish intentions, um, 
then then I think we're going to take an, a, a broader step towards, you know, having more fruitful dialogues. There's some really interesting research where they look at, you know, they try to explain that this is back when Bush was entering the Iraq war for people who thought who people agreed with Bush. They thought that he was doing it for altruistic reasons. He was doing it to help the people. When people disagreed with Bush, they thought he was doing it for selfish reasons. They were trying to benefit his own wealth or popularity or whatever the case may be. And so what often happens is when we engage with people who hold an opinion opposite to ours, we tend to immediately ascribe them kind of negative attributions. We ascribe them selfish motives. We ascribe them emotionally based attitudes. And all of this, you know, when we enter a conversation with those assumptions, I mean, you're not going to be able to have a rational dialogue with someone who's merely holding their opinion because they think it's going to benefit them or because it's based on kind of illegitimate reasons. So I think going into any conversation with trying to free yourself of assumptions about the individual and understand, well, why do they think this is the best case for our society um, will then allow you to have kind of a better dialogue about the pros and cons of each position. Do you see that do you see a lot of people making that transition because we we're starting to see the consequences of what's happened when we haven't had this type of structure and framework is the conversation starting to shift of, Hey, this is probably the way we need to start approaching this. I know you said that they're looking at ways to address bipartisan, you know, conversations and platforms. What's that look like for us, man? Like how, how in the world do we start to kind of put the pieces of what just got sh totally shambled over the last 18 months back together it kind of sounds like we're going through that rebirth period where we get to kind of make that decision of hey the ship's really far off course let's start to put some of these things in place to put us back on a course where we can all kind of agree hey this is the right way to go and not be so divided just off of the identity of who we are yeah you know i think that is a, a really good but difficult question so you know at kind of a, a more nuanced level. They have specific interventions like Better Angels is a group. Um, there's a, an organization at Harvard bringing together people uh, on different opinions on Israel and Palestine, where really just sitting people down in kind of like a specific discussion and hey we're going to have a pro kind of setting the rules ahead of time uh, can be effective. I mean there's some research showing that you know the most powerful way to get people to kind of align on an opinion or idea is to have them engage in a rational you know conversation about it but that can be very difficult when there's not that kind of outside party organizing it. What further complicates the issue is this big shift of online word of mouth. So the game rules change a lot when you're online. When things become anonymous, uh, you know, people feel more inclined to share more extreme and offensive opinions. They also tend to think that their extreme opinions are going to be less offensive to other people because they're sent over line rather, you know, than in person. And so, you know, I think it's a totally different game when it comes to trying to rebuild these dialogues in the virtual sphere versus the in-person sphere. And they'll take different strategies to make this happen. Yeah, we've seen that play out. We get the dumpster fire that is Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, it, it, it's, uh, I know a lot of people have talked about the echo chamber and such, but it's very easy to really kind of cultivate your new source and cultivate the individuals uh, you interact with. I, you know, so in social psychology, there's a long history of using ostracism to punish people. So that means like when they do something bad, we exclude them from the group. So they recognize that this is wrong. Don't do this behavior again. Well, I mean, social you're public speaking, right? Because the only time you really had to do is when you're about to get kicked out of the tribe for doing something that went against their beliefs. Right, right. But nowadays you can ostracize someone with as, simil- as simple as like an unfollow button or an unfriend button. And that promotes a real problem because we're kind of relying on this psychology. You'll see a lot of people say, oh, if you voted for Trump or if you voted for Biden, unfriend me. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And that is just not the right solution. You may disagree with these people on really like morally established grounds, but unless we want a fractured society, we have to engage people with these different opinions, which means having hard dialogues, even dialogues where, you know, it's offensive to you to even hear these things people are saying. Now, of course, now we're getting a little bit into the free speech debate, um, which we could also go down. But, you know, I, I, I think the broader point is we can't just shut people out. We have to try and engage in these dialogues, even if they are difficult. Yeah, that's a, uh... The free speech topic's really interesting, right? Because we're getting into the idea of do these private companies have to respect these rights, right? Like does does Twitter have the authority just to silence somebody? And it, we saw this with people like Alex Jones. Yeah, he was wrong about a lot of things, but he was also right about a lot of it too. We also see that from Milo Yiannopoulos talking about politics, right? Mm-hmm. Got totally banned and disbarred from Twitter and people like Jordan Peterson on the other side of that aisle too, right? It doesn't seem to matter what side they're on, even though media says, yeah, they tend to be more uh, right-leaning conservatives that tend to get banned more. We see it kind of on both sides happening of, hey, people that just have vocal opinion that have influence tend to be shut down just so fast if it goes against what this company's interests are aligning with. And it's it's weird, it's super, super weird. And it puts puts me in an interesting spot as a business owner for this as well, because our whole business relies around digital marketing means. So we're trying to figure out is and I get asked a lot this too, are these platforms even worth me being on if it's just going to be bullshit and that's all that's all it is? Mm-hmm. And it's it's hard. It's a hard conversation to have and see where we're going forward as a society. Yeah, yeah, no, I think this is a very nuanced and important discussion to have. Um, And, you know, it it deals a lot, too, with some basic psychological motives kind of entering these spaces. And on the one hand, you know, when you talk about controversy, controversy generates interest, it gets people talking about it, it gets people engaged with it. But on the other hand, it it also incurs discomfort. You know, people don't feel great about it. They sometimes feel worse after leaving the conversation. And in fact, these competing motives influence the degree to which we're willing to talk about controversial topics. So at low levels of controversy, people don't really talk about it too much because it's not that interesting. At high levels of controversy, people don't really want to talk about it either because it's discomforting. And so it's kind of that moderate level of controversy where you have a, a, a fair amount of interest, you know, a contained amount of discomfort. And so trying to potentially talk about things that hit that level of controversy,
controversy might be a way to have the same kind of dialogues without inciting the same kind of opposition due to that psychological discomfort with, uh, with the issue. Yeah, what do we do with these platforms that are feeding us that level of controversy, right? I mean, the social dilemma pulled that back for a lot of people, but digital marketers have known they've done this for a really long time, which is let's say you're leaving a sports game, right? And your team loses, they're going to pitch you more controversial items because they know you're more likely to be enraged and engage more. Mm -hmm. There's a massive level of whether they were conscious or unconscious about the machine they created, the machine is still there and it's moving in that direction. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. There's a, you know, probably one of the most consistent findings in word of mouth research is that uh, physiological activation, that physiological arousal is what it's called, you know, where you feel excited or you feel anxious, that kind of feeling of tension really drives word of mouth. Like, whether it's positive content, negative content, the more physiologically activating that content is that enraged content that you mentioned, the more likely people are going to share it. So even if you don't have um, actual marketers pushing these specific kinds of content, AI algorithms pick up on this, right? They recognize, oh, wow, this really arousing content is more likely to be shared. I'm going to keep pushing that because, you know, as long as you're operating within this kind of pay to play capitalist model, of course, you know, that's what's going to be the ultimate goal of course, at the expense of maybe a more level-headed or rational discussion regarding the topic. So we talked about some of the, one of the negative physiological signs of this. What are some of the positive ones that people can utilize that will elicit a positive physiological response within their messaging and things to be able to go and kind of hit that contagion level? Yeah. So, um, I think that's an important question, right? It's easy to figure out that the negative content that gets people fired up is also going to be shared. But, you know, I think the important thing to realize, too, is that the same is true for positive content as well, like exciting content, amusing content, um, surprising content. All of this is also likely to generate um generate discussion. There, there's some emerging research too, you know, as, as I shared at the beginning, how um, you, people like to share positive information more than negative information because it, it, you know, makes you look warm and upbeat and, you know, people, people like those kind of individuals. Well, you could take the exact same kind of angering topic and you could frame it in a positive way or frame it in a negative way and that way you could kind of benefit from that high physiological activation while also promoting it in a more kind of supportive um, you know embracing way rather than an oppositional or kind of distancing way Um, yeah and you know I think another kind of positive way to help spread word of mouth is to include some kind of practical value in the message so you know that that is not it it builds in the value into the the message itself so people want to share it because there's something useful here that that is to communicate and and that's a way to kind of get away from maybe the physiological activation in favor of these other forms that lead people to spread the message. Do you know much about narrative transportation? I do, yeah. How much does narrative transportation have to deal with word of mouth? 
Yeah, so narrative transportation is this idea that, you know, when you read a story, it transports you into the narrative um, and engages you, you know, you engage with it more. And um, it's, it's very compelling. It's a very attention grabbing. You elaborate on the message a lot. So narrative transportation um, is very effective in getting people to engage with content, write something in form of a story, and people are more likely to listen to it remember it process it and that goes back to our evolutionary past is kind of communicating things through storytelling now what's really interesting about narrative transportation um, is that it can have some negative effects it can actually make people less aware of the facts in the message because they're so transported by the narrative so even though it can be more engaging, if there's like specific pieces of information in there that you want them to retain, it can actually reduce the likelihood of them remembering that because they are so engaged with kind of the narrative more broadly. But in general, stories are much more likely to spread than non-stories. Yeah. Do you think that's because of in-group versus out-group to any degree? We're like, we're more likely to remember some of the stats or some more elements of the story if we're part of that group versus if we're not part of that group? Um, it's definitely possible. I mean, we, we have an in-group bias where we are more likely to, you know, favor information related to our in-group. Um, but it, it could be the case that if an out-group member uh, does something surprising or unexpected, we would also be likely to remember that as well. So um, I, I think it would probably vary on the context a little bit. Yeah. Jake, I know we're running out of time. Where can people find you? How can they get a hold of more of your information? Yeah, so the, the best way to get more information about me is on my website, everydaypsych.com, um, where I'll post, you know, one to two blogs a month about uh, relevant psychology content um, and how it applies to improving everyday life. That's awesome. I love it. We'll make sure to put all those links inside the show notes for everybody to read and check out. Thank you so much for being here today, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Hey, everybody, that wraps it up. As always, if you found a nugget, you found a little piece of wisdom, you found something that's going to give you that one or 2% shift in your life, please leave a review, write us a comment, give it a five-star rating so that way Jake can get more publicity. We can start to push this message out to more individuals who need our help the most. I hope you have an incredible holiday season and we'll catch you in the next episode.